Can you just turn with me again uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and to the verse number 9. We'll just read it just to have it fresh in your mind. And we trust that even parts of it uh, will be hopefully dealing with the majority of it. We'll see how we get on with time. I'm looking at this clock here at the front. And to begin with, it was upside down. And then I looked at it when I flipped it over the right way around. And I think it's about 10 minutes fast. Uh, so you might get out of here a little bit quicker than normal. Or else I might just get so confused that you could be here longer uh, than normal. But hopefully we'll not be too, uh, keep you too long this morning. And we trust that as we look at these words, that there will be an encouragement to your heart and help you as you walk with God. And is really drawing our attention to the feet of the saints. It says, He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. And we do hope that uh, both people mentioned in this verse, both the wicked and the saints, will have a word from the Lord today. And whatever camp you might be in, whatever kingdom you are a part of, uh, I do believe that God will have you listen to his word, to hear his word, to heed it, and to live in light of it. And so whether you are wicked or whether you are a saint, I pray even now that God would speak to you from this text of Scripture and from this prayer that Hannah prayed thousands of years ago, that there might still be life found in these words of life, even to your heart and soul. Let's just pray together now to that end. <coughs> Our Heavenly Father, we once again approach thy throne, and we do so and we ask as we do so that you'd come and have mercy upon each one that's gathered in, have mercy upon the preacher and give help and strength to the preaching of thy word. <clears throat> Lord, we pray that every single aspect of the service would be, uh, Lord, brought together uh, for your glory. Perhaps something that has been mentioned already in the hymns or in the reading and that have already pricked the conscience of individuals here, that it might even be pressed further home to their heart and that they might know what it is to simply, uh, Lord, bask in thy glory, uh, to look to the God of heaven in his mercy and in his grace to lift up their voice in praise and song, to have a heart that rejoices, and Lord, to have a heart of submission as well. Those that are still battling against thee, thinking that perhaps they can prevail against the God that speaks to them and convicts them of their sin. May they know it is to surrender to him today, and look, even to come into thy kingdom, and to be added to the number of the saints, those that are holy and pure and righteous and godly. Lord, help each one here, and to be able to be described in such a way, and to live in such a way that we might do so for thy glory. We pray these things again in Jesus' name, asking that you'd answer them for his name's sake and for the furtherance of his kingdom in this place. Amen. Amen. This is not the first sermon that I've preached on Hannah's prayer. It's really a bit of a series I've been going through over the past number of weeks and spent most of the summer uh, dealing with a text of Scripture that I had overlooked the last time I was preaching through the book of 1 Samuel. A couple of years back, before I was helping out in our congregation in Donagadee, I think I got to chapter 14 or so, and one of our brethren asked me, well, I suppose you spent ages speaking and preaching on the prayer of Hannah in chapter 2. And my face probably went a little bit red whenever I told him I didn't even deal with any parts of it. But here we have spent um, at least eight or nine uh, messages uh, in this uh, portion of God's Word. There is much truth uh, to fill your heart with joy and praise in this passage. And we might read psalms or prayers and so songs like this in the Scriptures as they're recorded. You might think, oh, that's a nice prayer. You might think of the context and think about the difficulties of her as a mother in her circumstances as she prayed it. And you might move on and forget about it and not think very much about it thereafter. But this is a text of Scripture that while it is short and while her life and the story that we know about Hannah may be brief in comparison to the rest of the Scriptures that are before us, nonetheless, it is rich. 
This portion, these 10 verses, they are rich in, in joy. They are rich in righteousness. They are rich in doctrine that teaches about the holiness of God, as we've mentioned <coughs> there in the verse number 2, about his salvation and about how we are to praise in the verse number 1. If you just glance there at the verse number 3 as well, it, she talks about the God that knows, the God that knew about her circumstances, that knew about her barren womb, and but also knew what he was going to do in her life and through her son in the days to come. This is a prophetic prayer. She speaks about things in the latter part, the verse number 10, which I haven't quite got to, but I'm looking forward to preaching on, because it there talks about this, this one that is the anointed one, who is going to come and, and judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king. Bearing in mind that at this time in the, the nation of Israel, there was no king. The book of Judges, we have them, them crying out for a king, but here she comes in a, as a prophetess of Scripture, and she, she speaks about this king that would come. She's not talking about David and, and all the other many kings that would come thereafter, whether good or evil. She was talking about the one that is described at the end of her prayer as the exalted and the anointed one. As the prophesied one from way back in Genesis chapter 3, the one that would bruise Satan's head. The one that would have power over sin. The one that would come as the conquering king. The one that would rule and set up a kingdom in this place. The one that would die, as Isaiah tells us would have his stripes and would heal his people and make saints thereby by giving his life upon the cross. This was a woman that knew her God. While she had a difficult life and she was filled with sorrow at times, you look back into to the verse number 18 of chapter 1, and she's finishing her prayer there. She says she went her way and did eat. She comes away from, from a heart that was filled with sorrow. It says there at the end of that verse that her countenance was no more sad. Prior to that, she was in bitterness of soul. Weeping over her state, weeping over her condition, unable to go on with life, it seemed. No matter what anybody would say to her, she could not find joy because she was going through persecution. Penina, her husband's other wife, was causing problems in the home. And you might have a Penina, not necessarily your husband being married to another woman, but you might have difficulties like that in your life, individuals coming about you and in your workplace or even in your home and you struggle, you have to battle with them over and over and over and over again. Hannah's sorrow didn't just last for a week or two. She didn't just go through a trial that was sort of brief and she got on with her life thereafter. No, this went on for years. It seems to me that she was his first wife. After a period of time, who knows, it could have been a year or two, he begins to realize and she begins to come to the conclusion I cannot bear children. He then finds another wife, and she has at least four children. You can add up the years. You can think about the sorrow of heart as she watches blessing, it seems, being poured out upon this wicked woman that was living in her household. And the blessing seems to be passing her by. But God knew her in the midst of all of that. And she also comes and praises the God that turns the tables changes things the great unchanging god is the one that comes into her life into her circumstances just as he has done maybe in your life already or as he can do if you'd simply open the door to him and receive him in he can change things for us whatever the darkness in your life is whatever the trials might be especially whenever you come to consider your sin and your guilt and your sorrow and what lies before you in eternity if you're outside of christ god can deal with it he is able to save I was speaking with individuals just in the workplace last week about one of our own ministers who spent a little bit of time in prison. And they were talking about other prisoners as well, people that have apparently found religion. 
And the unsaved man I was speaking to, he says, I can't get that. It doesn't make sense to me. I have an uncle who a couple of years ago died when he was just over 50, and he was the one man that would have been described a little bit like Penina in our home. Every single Sunday afternoon at Granny's house, he would have came along just for an argument, giving mom and dad a hard time, perhaps, about bringing us out to the mission field. What sort of life is that? He hated the gospel. He lived a life of sin. The rest of my family couldn't understand it, and still to this day perhaps can't understand it. Why would God save a man like that on his deathbed? How could he be a Christian after the life that he lived? Maybe you're sitting here today and you look at sinners around you and you look at their, their guilt and their shame. Maybe you even look into your own heart. You see what you have done and you think to yourself, God cannot save me. I'm too far gone, as one man said to me last week. The reality is, if you think that about the God of the Bible and his salvation, which he offers, and the salvation which Hannah is rejoicing in here today, then you have misunderstood the gospel in its entirety. Jesus Christ is powerful. He is described in the verse 9 and in the verse 10 as one that has strength. He is one that is given strength from God. He is one that has power over sin. And he can have power over that sin in your life. We as Christians here today, if you are a believer, you've known what it is to share in this joy of salvation. You've known what it is to rejoice in his holiness, in the knowledge of God, in the fact that he girds you with his strength and guides us and guards us in our lives. And it's really that that I want to draw your attention to here today because this passage deals with really three, three things in, in really the, the top level of it. If you just glance with me again at the verse number 9, it has the keeping of the feet of his saints in the first place. There are saints that are mentioned here. But there are also those that are described as being silenced. The wicked shall be silent in darkness. And there's something I think is alluded to in the latter part of this verse it talks about, for by strength shall no man prevail. And that's obviously in a negative sense. But if you move on to the chapter, or the verse number 10, she speaks there about this one that is described as the anointed king. He shall give strength unto his king. So there's three groups of people, or three persons that could be described here. There are the, the saints, there are the wicked sinners that are silenced in their darkness, and there is this individual that could be described as being strong. I wonder, are you amongst the saints, though? What is a saint? This is the only second time in Scripture where this word is used, in the Hebrew at least. And it's used in the plural. But prior to that, and in other places, it's used in the singular. About the saint. One saint in the eyes of God. And really, we would... Be amiss to, to move on from this and deal with all the practical things about how he keeps the feet of, the feet of his saints uh, before we deal with who the saints actually are. You cannot be described, and you are not a saint today, unless you are in the saint, in the holy one, in the pure one, in the one that is godly. We might have some godly attributes as believers. We might have some glimmers of purity in our lives. We might try to live a holy life in this world. We might be described as do-gooders or good living by the world around us. But the reality is we do not fit this description in and of ourselves. Nobody sitting before me, no matter how long you've been saved or how holy you might think you are or how godly the world might think you are, or even how godly the church might think you are, you are not a saint in the strict sense of the word. We fall short. 
The word really means to be pure. It means to be holy. It means to be godly. And I wonder, as we think about that very last thing especially, if I ask you the question, are you godly? How any of us could come and say positively, yes, I am. Oh, surely we're not what we once were. We lived in sin and for self. But to come and to positively say publicly that I am godly. It should be a solemn thing when you think about being a saint. Because we are not what we ought to be. We are not as pure and as holy and as godly as we were made to be, and we will never be in this world. But nonetheless, the Bible still talks about saints in the plural. And Hannah is still talking about the gathering of God's people. So how can these two things come together? We know that we do not fit the definition perfectly. We know that we fall far short of God's glory. We are not as godly as we should be or not as holy as we ought to be. We fall short of being pure when it comes to God's standard, at least. And so there is this this great void between even God's church and the definition of what it is to be a saint. But if you think to the epistles in the New Testament, to the, the epistle to the Philippians, for example... What does the apostle say to them as he opens up that book? He says, to all the saints. But he says that are in Christ Jesus. To all the saints that are in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. It doesn't matter how long they were saved. It doesn't matter how godly they were. It doesn't matter how many times they stumbled and fall in their walk with God. He describes them all, blanket statement, as being saints. Not because they came out from the world. Not because they were living differently to the world. Not because they were a little bit better and more good in their outward appearance to the world that was around them. No, they were described as saints because they were in the saints. They were gathered together in this this body of people called saints because they were under his name. They were in union with him. They are at one with him. And so the people that Hannah is referring to here in her song of praise, they are a people described as saints, not because of anything that they have done, but all because of what he has done for them and because they are living in him. And that's something that underlines everything that is said here. If you are not in him, then your feet are not kept. If you are not in him, then you are not guarded and guided by the God of heaven. You are left to your own devices. But as saints in this saint, as saints in the Savior, as ones that live in him, and ones that are united to him, we have something that we can take home with us today to encourage us. Because it tells us here, and Hannah sings and rejoices in the fact that he keeps the feet of his saints. He guards them. That's what that word could be translated as. In the New Testament, the idea of this word often is used in prisons. He, he encloses us. He, he, he closes us into himself. He guards us. He protects us. If you're a saint here today, then you are protected by the God of heaven who is all-powerful. He sees and he knows all of your life circumstances. And he keeps you. You are guarded as one of his people. Hannah In her experience, she knew the persistence, the the time and time again that that Penina would come on and attack her, to mock her, to make light of her, to make fun of her. But while she knew the persistence of this one that was persecuting her, she also could rejoice in the protection of the one that saved her. And as saints, we must always rejoice in the God that that holds our hand throughout life. If If you've been brought up in the church, if you have been brought up by a Christian family, you should be able to rejoice in the fact that, that God has brought you into a protected 
body of people. That you were born into a family where your parents were teaching you the scriptures, hedging you around with truth, wanting to instruct you and to guard you from the things of this world. But our parents fail, don't they? Our parents fall short of that protection that we would long for and we, we would want to have as we get older, as we look back at our lives. We see maybe times where they have slipped up. We see times when the guard was let down. We look at our own lives as parents. We try to hold our children's hand, even as they cross the road. And in a spiritual sense, we try to lead them. We try to guard them. We try to protect them. But we fail. They say things at times. And our mouths drop because we think our three-year-old shouldn't be saying that. Then we realize that maybe they've copied something we've said. We haven't guarded them. They've maybe seen something on the television. We've heard somebody out in the street. And we haven't maybe taught them in the way that we should have. And we see our own shortcomings as parents. We don't protect them. We don't guard them. We don't keep them as we would like to be able to keep them. We cannot keep them safe. There are many. And the note is to have the sorrow of losing little ones. Hannah knew that. I believe that at least anyway. It doesn't make it very plain and clear. But I think from the verse number uh, six of her song here. I think she knew what it was to lose children. I think she came to the conclusion that she had a barren womb, unable to bear children because she lost them first and foremost. Note the way she, was, she puts it there in the verse number six. The Lord killeth. She knew loss before she knew life in her womb. Now that's me just maybe implanting my own thoughts upon this woman, but I do believe that that is perhaps something that could be taken from that portion of Scripture. And even if it's not, nonetheless, the reality is there that there are many in this world that have known what it is to have little ones, to know what it is to, to bury those children. Because we cannot protect them in the way that we would like to protect them. We cannot keep them safe from the world in a spiritual sense. Physically speaking, we are not in control. But we come to a God as heavenly children. And he guards our steps. He keeps us. He protects us. And you might look at your circumstances, you might think to yourself, well, how can you say that whenever every Christian will have a deathbed experience at some point, or every Christian will go from this life into death? How can we talk about this God that guards us and keeps us whenever every single child of God throughout history thus far has died? How can we say that? It's because God doesn't just simply guard his people but he also guides us he guides us in our life but he also guides us to death death being that great doorway for the child of god for the saint into that eternal union which is unbroken which is perfect which is where we will know it is to be true saints in the the best definition of the term pure godly holy in the way we were meant to be god will guide us into that place and into that experience but he also guides us here in this world. If you are a saint of God, you must know what it is to bow your head in his presence, to come before him, to the one that you have prayed to preserve you, to protect you, to the one that shields us, the one that is described as our buckler and as our helper throughout Scripture time and time again. We also should come to him as the one that guides us for the future. You can look into your past and even through the darkest days of your experience, through the darkest moments of your life, where the, maybe in the midst of that time you've wondered about his guiding and his protecting hand. You've questioned him at times, but with the benefit of time and hindsight, you look back and you can see how God has been preserving. You can thank him for that. But we can, as Christians and as saints, not only look back and praise him for the past, 
But we can look to the future and thank him that he guides our feet. Our feet are used to bring us places. The picture is very clear, at least in my mind, that this is talking about us in our walk with God. Every single day of the week, every time you leave your home, he doesn't just simply protect you, but he guides you in the places and the ways that you ought to go. Everything. Everything. Not just the spiritual things in your life, but everything in your life is by the hand of a guiding God. He's brought you to where you are today. He's brought you to your family. He's brought you to the place where you live, to the community that surrounds you, to the workplace and your colleagues that you're alongside. He's brought you there for a purpose. If you're one of his saints, you are there to shine for him, to bring glory to him. And he doesn't have you there in vain. This next part of Scripture or the next part of the passage talks about the wicked being silent in darkness. I started a new job recently, and my old manager texted me about two weeks ago and asked me, how are you getting on? She's a Christian lady, a Baptist woman that was my manager, and we would have had plenty of good conversations over the past seven or so years that I was working in that firm. And I said to her, the job's going okay, but to be honest, if I got back into the office next week, it would feel like going to church. You might have the privilege of being in a workplace like that where uh, you have godly people around you and even those that aren't believers, they uh, maybe are a little bit cleaner in their speech. I've moved to work and working with contractors at the minute and uh, with individuals that have, have seen much in the world and they're not uh, afraid to speak about it. I was talking to my brother yesterday and saying to him, it's almost like a speech impediment. The amount of swearing comes out of people's mouths been a little bit of an adjustment for me but as i came to this text of scripture i wondered about the wicked being silent and they certainly aren't silent in work the bad language is one thing the content of their conversation is something completely different again and maybe you know that as well maybe you're a bit more like them than the saints of this passage these individuals that we work alongside they're dead on people even when it comes to being guided starting a new job the the colleagues that I have they said don't worry you'll be with those various contractors they've been here for years they know their way about the place they know what they're doing they'll keep you right and they have they've given help and and different things when it comes to the new job but again this passage is talking about something far greater than somebody keeping you right showing you the places and the ropes and how you're meant to do things the right way this is a passage talking about God keeping us right keeping his people right but it goes on, as we've said, and talks about these wicked individuals being silenced. And we've said there that they certainly aren't silent in their speech when it comes to things that are not good. Now, I couldn't say for certain that Hannah's talking primarily here about, in fact, I don't necessarily believe that she's talking primarily about individuals that uh, say nothing good or have nothing good coming out of their mouths. But when it comes to the silent in this passage, we've dealt with the saints, but the silent individuals here... <clears throat> You could maybe take from it that they say nothing good. They're silent in regards to things that are holy, things that are godly. They've got the picture now. Some of them know that I do a bit of preaching at the moment. And now you have the, the sort of snide comments in the midst of their dark humor and their vile tongues. And they'll maybe say something like, oh, Jesus wouldn't like that. Sure, he wouldn't, Aaron. Making light of it. Making light of sin. Making a mock of the gospel and the purity that is revealed in scripture. And so 
you can't say black and white that they are silenced, at least in this life in which we're living. But they say nothing good. In the darkness of their sin, they have nothing good, nothing holy to add to any conversation. Do you have anything good or holy to add to conversation? Do you have anything that you could sort of butt in a little bit? And I know from experience in the past four weeks, it's not impossible. Everything seems to get turned and twisted in their minds for evil. But do you try to, to get in a good word that has light in it, while all the world around you says nothing good in the darkness of their hearts? When they're pouring out the sin and the violence of the weekend past, and the imagination of their mind, do you know what it is to, to shed light, the light of the gospel, in such conversations? They say nothing but good because they do not know the one that is good. Their mouths are filled with corrupt thoughts and words, and their speech is filled with wickedness and sin, because that is what is in the heart. And I had to remind, remind myself what it was like being back in school. You would have came to church on Sunday, you were sent to all the meetings, but... Back in school, I wasn't any different to them. Back in school, the other individuals that I was running about with would have often said, are you not a minister's son? You shouldn't be saying that. Many of us here know what it's like to be in the darkness of our sins. Know what it is like to have a mouth that is foul, to say nothing good. Because no matter what was going on, outwardly speaking, within our hearts, there was vileness and wickedness and sin. We're all born in the same pathway, a road to destruction that the world and the wicked ones are finding. And while your mouth may have been given a new song, as we were singing about earlier on, and whether you're still in the darkness of your own depraved state, there's hope for us in the light of the gospel to begin to say and to sing good things when once our mouths were silent and had nothing good to say. But I think Hannah is dealing with something much more than the conversations of the wicked. I think she's really touching on their conclusion, their end. The darkness that she is speaking of in this song isn't just the darkness of their depraved natural condition, but it is the darkness of hell. In Matthew's gospel, it is often described as outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Silence. I thought about those fellows I've been working with for the past few weeks. And it doesn't really hit home as it should. That one day their mouths will be silent. The corruption could be uh, silent or they could cease in the corrupt talk in the days to come if God would be merciful and gracious in saving their souls. But if they continue on in that condition, one day they will be silent. And I'm sat with my head on the corner wishing they would shut up. The reality is one day they will be shut up. And if you have work colleagues, if you have family members like that, that should be a terrifying prospect. One day they will have no more opportunity to sing praise because they will be silenced in outer darkness. They say nothing good in this life and they will say nothing to God when they stand before him on the judgment day. I'm sure some here have maybe heard of Stephen Fry. 
They've come across maybe some of his, his interviews in the past. And one interviewer, I think it was an RT, asked him the question, what would you do if you were to stand before God in the pearly gates? This man is an, an atheist. He believes, he believes there is no God. And what he says in his interview, really I couldn't quote the half of it. But let me just give you something of what he says in the opening remarks. If he were to stand before the God of heaven. In his arrogance and in his wickedness, he would say to him, How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery? That's not our fault. That's the thought of the wicked. He goes on in his, in his speech and in his talk for another couple of minutes, and, and I think even the interviewer is taken back by the violence of this man. The reality is, one day, whenever he does stand before the king, if, if he does not be saved before then, is he'll have nothing to say. You'll have nothing to say. Are you a saint? Are you more like Stephen Fry? Are you an individual on your way to heaven, singing the praises of God, or are you saying nothing good because there's nothing good in your heart? Are you running your way to hell, and are you going to be ultimately and eternally silenced? You can only be one of the two, either a saint or either ultimately and finally silenced. Hannah, in the closing remarks, she talks here about one that is strong, or at least in the negative, she speaks about us not having strength to prevail. We are too weak, we are too frail in our natural disposition, even spiritually speaking, unable to do anything for ourselves. And that's really a concluding thought on both the saint and the sinner. You can't save yourself. As a sinner, and as a saint, you cannot keep your salvation yourself. We have no strength, the Bible tells us over and over again, no strength to do anything for ourselves. The saints depend upon him, the God of heaven, the God of Hannah, and the sinner will be damned by him. Both those individuals will experience both those things without our strength being added to the equation. You cannot have power to save yourself, and we as believers have no power to keep ourselves. Let me just turn you to a couple of New Testament portions of Scripture. In the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and to the chapter 1. Just to emphasize this thought about us being without strength, and even as saints especially, depending upon God for the strength that we need to walk a life of purity and holiness and to continue on in what is called sanctification, that progressive walking toward God becoming more and more like him. 1 Corinthians, the apostle uses a terminology about being weak and strong over and over again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the verse 25, it says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, chapter 4 and the verse 10, the same idea. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. The second book of Corinthians uh, the same idea, let me just turn you to the 13th chapter, though, um, or rather the 12th chapter, and to the verse number 10. It's perhaps the most well-known uh, portion where he speaks about this uh, comparison and contrasting between our weakness and his strength. Second Corinthians 12 and uh, the verse 10, he says there, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in weaknesses, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. It doesn't make sense, humanly and physically speaking. 
But he comes and he rejoices in his fleshly weaknesses. And everything that you do for God, whenever you look at it, whenever you come and you're trembling in the pulpit or you're trembling to give out the gospel literature or you wonder to yourself, how can I have a conversation about the things of God? I don't know what I should know and I can't really describe it in the way that I would like to describe it or like other people describe it. You know your weaknesses. You know your frailties. You know you cannot do what you'd like to do. But verse 9 of chapter 12 He says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Whenever we are weak, whenever the world sees a weak individual standing up for God and wanting to speak for Christ, they realize that there's something more to this. Whenever there is fruitfulness and results come, we do not get the praise. We do not get the glory. We as saints must point our hand and our finger to God, the one that is able to give strength and the one that perseveres. And gives power. It says verse number 9 of chapter 13 as well. Second Corinthians. For we are glad when we are weak. And ye are strong. And this also we wish even for your perfection. There is something in this world. That would often remind us about our sin. And make us do nothing for God. Look at our weaknesses. Look at our frailties. Look at our inability to do X, Y, and Z. And it would hold us back. But God keeps us. And God strengthens us. And God is with his people. And really what this text of scripture is talking about in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is really the perseverance of God's people. And it's not through their power. Let me just read you a few things uh, just as we come to uh, our final concluding thoughts in a moment. Alan Cairns in his dictionary talking about the perseverance of God's saints. The doctrine that teaches that once we are saved, we cannot be lost. That's what Hannah's really touching on here, at least in, in the periphery anyway. Alan Cairns says in his dictionary, the perseverance of God in or rather, the perseverance of the saints is the perseverance of God and his love and grace toward his people. It is not something which depends upon human power or activity. He goes on to quote Burkhoff, who defines it as this, that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer, by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. So we talked about saints at the beginning being in this scene. But it doesn't just end there. It's not just I pray to prayer and now I'm in God and he's in me. No, he continues. He keeps you. He lives in you. He resides in you. In Galatians chapter 4, I think it's the verse number 19, Paul talks about the people that he preached to in Galatia and he preaches with the purpose, with the desire that Christ would be formed in them. As your new birth, conceived within your soul, is a new nature. It's not like that old man. And as you grow on that which is conceived in your heart, spiritually speaking, it grows, it develops, and that is sanctification. And it is Christ living in you. Christ living in us. Me standing in this pulpit, you sitting in your pew, as a believer, Christ is there. Not just sort of some figment of our imagination, not some sort of nice little idea or concept to help explain salvation. No, he's in you. He's growing, he's being formed in you. Does the world see him in you? Do you see his strength in the shadow of your weaknesses? Do they see God living in the saint that depends upon him? For the sinner that's here, the opposite is true. You are left to your weaknesses. You think that you're strong. 
You think that you're able-bodied? Do you think that you are invincible, perhaps? Do you think that you have control over your life and over your circumstances? It all takes is one brief millisecond in your life's experience for you to finally realize that that is not true. You think that you can work your, your, the best job, you can earn the most money, you can have all of the supply of finances and all of the luxuries that this world has to offer and you can be satisfied with it. You can think that you're in control of it. But once you take your final breath, if you have not realized it before, you will realize it then in a lost eternity. But there is one stronger than you, one that you cannot prevail over, one that you have no power to convince and no power to change, one that has the ability to damn your soul. And rightly so. All of us should be in hell right now. But God has prevailed over some here. And I often think about this when it comes to the gospel message. Individuals here, you've sat in church, you know your catechism, you know the scriptures, and I would guarantee you the vast majority of the people in this church would be able to quote much more of it than I can. But maybe some of you aren't saved yet. Maybe some of you are still fighting against God, still living in rebellion, still walking away. Every single time you come to the church, every single time you open your Bible, you do so just because everybody else around you is doing it. And you think that you can continue doing so. But there will come a day if Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross at Calvary, there will come a day whenever his salvation will prevail over you, just as it did with many of us. For 15 years of my life, living as a son in the manse, living in the church, living outwardly speaking as a Christian, I was fighting against God in my heart. But he prevailed over me whenever I thought I could prevail over him. For individuals that haven't been saved and will not be saved, God will still prevail. Your knee will still be bowed. One day, one day every single one of us will bend the knee in his presence. Some with songs of praise, but perhaps some here with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus Christ is strong and able to save. He's described here in the verse number 10 as being given strength. He is the king. He is the anointed one, the one that is blessed with the spirit. And you need to come to his cross. Not just a sinner, the saint as well. Go back to the cross. Cling to his cross. Realize that your life depends upon it. Realize that your living should be saturated in the cross. You need to know what it is to be covered by the blood that was shed on that cross every single day. Without it, you will not be saved. Without it, you cannot live as a saint. Without the strength of the one that is mentioned in the verse number 10, we have no strength to do anything for God. And no good will come from us or reside within us unless we first come to him, the one that is described as good and holy and just and pure. Sinner, would you not come to him this morning or even this afternoon? Would you not call upon the name of the Lord? Would you not realize that as Romans chapter 5 and the verse 6 tells us that it was while we were yet without strength that Christ died for the ungodly, for the wicked? While we were yet sinners, he came for the perishing. 
He came to save those that could not save themselves. Praise God, he came to make us saints in him. But on which side are you today? Are you a saint in Christ? Or will you one day be silenced for all eternity by the one that could have saved you, but ultimately damned when he returns as judge and as ruler and as king in this world? Let us just pray together as we close our service this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Hannah. We thank you that it was in the Holy Spirit's plan and purpose to record these words for our benefit and for the glory of even Jesus Christ, our King. We thank you that the God that she looked to with faith and belief, knowing that one day he would send his Son into this world, that he did do what she believed he would do. And Lord, we pray that each one here We know what it is to have that similar and like-minded faith of Hannah. But only let us look back, looking back to what he has done, looking back with a confidence, knowing that he is able to save us to the uttermost, looking with a confidence that while we were yet in our sin and while we are yet lost in our depraved, depraved state, that there is one that is able to deliver, one that is able to rescue, and one that is able to make a sinner into a saint. Lord, many here may have tried to turn over a new leaf. Many here may have known what it is to try their best. But ultimately, they've known what it is to fail. Lord, may they know what it is to come to one that has succeeded where they have failed time and time again. Help them to cling to the one that fulfilled the righteousness of the law in every single part. Help them to cling to his righteousness and to be clothed by his purity. May they know what it is to call upon the name of the Lord even now and to be saved, to walk with thee. Lord, may they surrender and submit to the one that can prevail over sin. And that Jesus Christ might be glorified even today in the salvation of a soul, in the restoration of a backslider, and even in the encouragement of the saints to walk on with thee, hand in hand, with the one that gives them power and strength to live in his endless and powerful life. Lord, come and bless us now. Bring us to our homes in safety. And may we return here with a desire to hear what God would have to say unto our hearts with an anticipation that God can and will do great and wonderful things through the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the reading of the scriptures, and the songs of praise even tonight. Lord, come and bless us now. Even though we do not deserve it, we ask it nonetheless in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>